I would say if you're thinking you might have a problem, you probably have. No one's going to tell you you're an alcoholic because it's so subjective. Someone might drink a bottle and a half a day and not be an alcoholic because they haven't got the madness, the illness that goes with it. So probably the thing I would say which resonated with me the most and took away some of the shame was um, just to remember you're not a bad person who needs to be good. You're an ill person who needs to get well. This month, the Hurt to Healing podcast is marking both Stress Awareness Month and Women's Health Month. Women's Health Month is an awareness event that focuses on the health concerns that women, non-binary and transgender people experience daily, while Stress Awareness Month is a wonderful way of highlighting the negative impact that stress has on our mental health. Education and empathy are vital for transforming female mental health and providing people with the support that they deserve. That's why this month, I will be speaking to phenomenal women about a host of topics ranging from addiction, burnout, to prenatal depression, so that women can feel less alone and misunderstood and can be inspired by others who have finally found light in the darkness. The Hurt to Healing podcast is proud to partner with Shout, the UK's first free, confidential, 24-7 tech support service. So if you're struggling to cope and need mental health support, please text SHOUT, S-H-O-U-T, to 85258. Today, I'm over the moon to be joined by Susanna Constantine. Susanna is a novelist, journalist, and podcaster with over 25 years' experience in the media. You also might know her as the host of What Not to Wear, alongside Trini Woodall. While the show might have been about helping women love themselves from the outside in, this conversation just proves how Susanna has come to understand that if you support the inside, the outside will shine. Susanna bravely opens up about her struggle with alcohol addiction and why it took so long for her to realise how serious the problem was. So, if you listen to this and begin to question your own relationship with alcohol, then it might just be time to stop procrastinating and to ask for help. So, will you talk to us about growing up? How did you feel about yourself and what were your confidence levels generally like? Growing up, I was incredibly shy. I barely had any friends at all. But I don't recognize or remember ever being confident or unconfident. It's weird, sort of back in the 60s and 70s. I don't think it was an issue. I don't think, you know, now we're so aware of it with, you know, it's more open and with social media and everything. But I don't think I've ever been unconfident because it's not something that has really registered with me. I have been, as I said, painfully, painfully shy, but I didn't understand it as being unconfident. And you never had that imposter syndrome where you felt... Like, oh God, none of my friends like me. Who am I in this world? Like I'm not achieving as much as I should be at school. You know what? We didn't, I had no pressure put on me. And I think people of my generation, I'm 60, will understand this because growing up at that time, there was no expectation for girls at all coming from a privileged background. There was no expectation for us to amount to anything other than 
becoming a wife and basically turning into our mothers. And as my mum was a kind of basket case, God bless her, but with terrible bipolar disorder, she was not my role model. You know, she was never going to be my role model. So I didn't really have a role model. And so I never had any expectations. You know, I didn't really work very hard at school. I had the friends that I had, but it was so different. You know, we didn't have to go through that because, like I said, the expectation for girls and for women at that time was zero, pretty much. Yeah, I guess it's very different, isn't it? Now we're expected to do everything. Mm. You're expected to be a mom, a a CEO, an influencer. And happy. Well, that's not going to happen if you're trying to be a mom and a CEO. I mean, that annoys me so much when they say women can have it all. You can't have it all. You know, I see friends who are very, very successful and have kids. You know, one side has to give and one side will suffer because of it. So finding a balance, it is really, really difficult. And I think it's more about you've got to make a decision, which I kind of did, of choosing. I mean, I had the, you know, I was lucky enough to be able to choose the times I was really busy. And I was really busy working with Trini when I was younger, when I was, you know, the kids were younger. And I think it did affect them a bit. But now that I'm not so busy and haven't really been, you know, that constant traveling around the world, I mean, Trini and I were like away six months of the year. But then I was at home from when they became teenagers. And as far as my kids are concerned, I think that's when they needed me. They needed their actual mum. You know, other people could step in to a certain degree. But that's when my kids really needed me. And do you think your devotion to being that mother, and obviously that is now your absolute priority, do you think that that was influenced by your own mum's battle with bipolar and and not having her there? No, I don't. I mean, I'm such a weirdo. I really don't think it was because... You know, I look at my mum's illness and I don't kind of look at it and go, okay, I've got to make the changes. I can't repeat the cycle. I've got to close the circle. I choose to look at my mum's illness in a positive way because I never knew how she was going to be from one day to the next. I could only live in the present. And that is been the greatest gift I could have been given because I don't look back I don't really think about the future. I am so totally in the here and now. And people, you know, they strive for that. And so that was a gift my my mum gave me. And as far as my kids, I haven't made a conscious effort to be different to my mum because my mum, she couldn't help how she was. You know, she was as devoted and as loving as she could be. And I knew it was there. But it was, you know, the illness was, to me, was something separate. So... You know, I I think really with my kids, it's more I've tried to move forward with the time. So whilst I was ready for absolutely nothing, I had no opinion of my own. No one was interested in my opinion, didn't count. That's where I've consciously made an effort, I think, with my own children is to be independent, to try not to worry about what other people think. And if people do think something about you and it gets back to you, it's actually none of your business. So don't worry about it. And also, again, to live in the moment because, you know, you worry about the future, you worry about what's going to happen tomorrow, next week, but you can't change it. So there's no point in worrying about it until you get there. And usually when you do get there, it works out okay. So I think it's that and it's kind of, you know, being 
open and, you know, I talk about my children, about my alcoholism. I talk, my son has um, anxiety. Uh, he's much better now, but we would talk about that. So it's because I suffer from anxiety. And it was looking at that connection where you have something that is similar to them or you have the same thing. And then there's that real point of identification where you can talk about your own experience, mm. which in effect will help theirs. When did your anxiety start? When did you first identify that as being an issue? As a child, from when I went to boarding school, I, every morning, I remember writing to my mum and, and, you know, desperately homesick at boarding school and waking up, you know, in the middle of the night. I remember I used to write to her when I got the chance to speak, saying I've got to, I've woken up with a sweaty bottom, <laughs> which was stress. You know, that was stress-related. And I still have it. I still wake up with that fear in my stomach every morning. It's mm. still there. But now I choose to, someone said to me, you know, look at it as something that's going to come and go. It's like a haunting. And that's what it is. So it's just haunts my body when I get up and then I use it also as a motivator to get my mm. fat ass going in the day. You know, I've tried not very hard, but I have tried various things. It's like I've just come back from this amazing yoga retreat in Norway with this guy called Angus Ford Robertson, who's very funny and not sort of mindfulness crazy and all that. I couldn't bear that. And everyone was having these amazing emotional releases. And I was just like Hearthstone, you know, not a single emotion coming out at all. But I kind of understood the merit of that, of getting out and getting out of your head. And I think a lot of the time you just got to fake it to make it and then it becomes your reality. And I know you're a big fan of cold water swimming mm. and cold water exposure. And I, I think a lot of routine can help allay that anxiety. I think if you've got a, per if you set yourself a purpose or a goal in the morning to get up to go to, I certainly suffered from anxiety from mm. a very young age too. And it started at boarding school. And I think I found solace in later on in life in the exercise because it's mm. immediately sort of numbed that feeling of like, Oh God, I'm feeling unsafe. I, it gave me something to latch onto and something mm. solid. Do you think that that's, why your drinking started. Yeah, I mean, my kind of, you know, solid form was a wine bottle. That's what I went to. And I don't know about that. I mean, you know, you say like in AA meetings, it's, and you learn that you're drinking on your feelings. I don't think I did. I think, I mean, I did in a way, but I think having done Julia Samuel's podcast, and she's a very dear friend, and it was, there was a, quite a few light bulb moments with her. From that, I, I've understood that I drank to feel vital, to feel alive. And I think my whole time going through, you know, the whole Trini and Susanna years, I was playing the part of someone else. It wasn't who I truly am. And it was amazing. Don't get me wrong. It was amazing. Trini is still one of my absolutely dearest, dearest, dearest friends. We're like sisters. But I think it, I wasn't being true to myself, and I think that didn't help. And since I've got sober, you know, I've realised that I'm actually an introvert. You never know it. An outspoken introvert, but I'm an introvert. I don't like being with loads of people. Uh, I never really have, but I love being on my own. I thrive on solitude. 
And so it's kind of like I've gone full circle. I've gone back to the life I had as a child, which is quite a lonely, not lonely, but I was alone. I was never lonely, but I was alone. And um, I think that's what's changed. And that's why I love writing so much, because it's the perfect excuse to go, fuck off, I'm going. See ya. See you all later. I had this really interesting conversation with Krista D'Souza and it's that thing as addicts that we all share where, as you say, it does give us that vitality in a way because it's sort of living on a knife edge. It's that danger, that like recklessness within you and you get that buzz from it and it's actually reining that in and realising that you don't need to live on a knife's edge and you don't need to go to those extremes in order to get that dopamine hit and to feel okay and to feel alive. I don't know if I ever got that feeling alive. Although I thought, I mean, it just made everything that was going on around me more fun. I didn't look at it as making me more fun, but I so identify with what you're saying about the knife edge. Mm. And I like putting myself in danger because then again, I'm, you know, someone who's fundamentally quite shy, who is an introvert. It's sort of, okay, I'm powerful. I can Mm. do this. I'm brave. I've got the courage to do this. And it's not an addiction, but it's definitely some, I mean, you know, that's like doing Strictly. I mean, what a fucking, it was the worst experience of my life. Although I loved meeting all the people. I loved everything about, apart from the dancing, which I fucking loathed. And I was so bad. <laughs> and it was so, so humiliating. But it was that thing. It's like, you know, that absolute fear of stepping off the cliff. So there's definitely an element of that. And I, th- I don't know if it's become... It, it probably has become more exacerbated since I've stopped drinking. And hence probably the cold water swimming, actually. It gives you that rush that you kind of... Yeah, but also I think I genuinely do it for my mental health and physical health. So I'm very, you know, for me, I don't, you know, I don't do Botox or any fillers or any of that. That's I choose not to. But I do, you know, if I could Botox my insides... I would, you know, if there was fillers that to make my insides absolutely beautiful, young and perfect, then I would. But that's my focus. So it's eating healthily, it's exercising, it's doing things like cold water swimming. And I don't care if I look like a rusty old Land Rover as long as I've got a Ferrari engine. I'm also interested in that juxtaposition of fearfulness and fearlessness. Mm -hmm, And it seems mm -hmm. to be that we fluctuate from one to another. On one hand, we can be these introverted, fearful hermits and we like being on our own and we like our little sort of, you know, routines and our caves. And on the other hand, you're suddenly, you've got this fearlessness that will just enable you to do strictly. It will enable you to just walk into a room and just present to a thousand people. Mm -hmm. And then you'll have a conversation with three people and you'll be sort of, you know, so tense and this ball of anxiety. It's weird, isn't it? Uh, it is very strange. Yeah. And I think it's something to do with the way our minds work and it's obviously... Yeah, I think so. And I think it's also, you know, like you say, I can unprepared go and stand up in a thousand, in front of a thousand people and talk and be really good. You know, I'm not saying that in an immod- immodest way, but I love it. I really enjoy it. Um, but then put me into a party of 300 people who I know well or semi-know, that is my worst nightmare. So there's a part, and I don't know if you find this, where I find it very easy to communicate with strangers. So easy. I love meeting new people. But it's that kind of middle place where old friends are old friends and that's a different category altogether. But those people who you sort of semi-know, 
they're the fucking worst. Got to get rid of all of them. So will you talk me through what your drinking looked like? How did it start? And when did you realise that it was a problem? I don't really know how it started. It just sort of started to escalate, I would say. And probably when we moved from London to Sussex and then my mum died, I don't think that triggered my drinking. But I'd always drunk to help my shyness, but never really to excess, I don't think. And then it just escalated and it became habitual. And then the, but the habitual side became more and more regular. And so I was drinking every day. And so many people, you know, there's this misconception that it's, you know, you're an alcoholic if you're on a park bench with all your bags around you. You know, they, as you know, Pandora, it's all different forms. And I was highly functioning. You know, I could function. I could get up in the morning. I could look after my kids. I could, you know, I was working really hard. So I was a highly functioning alcoholic, but I was dying inside. To the world, I was absolutely fine, but I was dying inside. And then my husband, Steen, he was amazing because he never said anything to me. And since I got sober, you know, I know that he spoke to Trini and he spoke to my sister and various other people, but he understood that the only person who was going to help me was myself. And it just got that I, I started to feel embarrassed about drinking the amount I was. So I started to do it in secret. And so I'd have, you know, a bottle of wine on the go in my wardrobe upstairs and I'd be drinking with everyone else, but I was drinking double to everyone else because I'd have a bottle stashed away. And that's when I realised that, you know, I had a problem and then I, I'd never blacked out ever, but I did black out in Cornwall and that's when I realised I needed help and I called up this friend of mine in New York, actually, this guy called John Barrett, who's a hairdresser out there. I spoke to him and said help. I asked for help. So it was the power of desperation that got me into AA. I didn't go to rehab. But, you know, I was probably drinking between a bottle and a half, maybe two bottles a day. So, and I'd never, ever drink in the day. I'd only drink from six o'clock, but I'd be watching that clock and waiting for six o'clock. And I'd be thinking about six o'clock for the whole day. Well, I'd be saying I'm never going to drink again until about lunchtime. And then from then I'd be, well, you know, it's fine. And why do you think that was your rock bottom? Because I'd been thinking about it. You know, I'd spoken to Trini about it. I'd gone to and she'd taken me to an AA meeting and, it, you know, it hadn't really hit. And then, you know, I, I sort of asked, I was kind of testing the waters and no one said to me, you've got, no, yeah, you need help. No one. So I was able to be in denial for longer than maybe I might have been. Yeah, I think it was just the fact I was just tired. I was just emotionally exhausted from living this double life and lying and the secrecy and not being able to be myself and scared to be myself because if I was myself, I was scared that, you know, my husband in particular would, you know, wouldn't want to be with me. So I think that's what it was. And then I just, so I spoke to John and he said, call up this person. I spoke up to this person, I can't remember her name. And I went to a meeting in Brighton. She took me to a meeting. And um, it was just like, sort of felt something. And then like the following week, I went into a meeting 
on my own. And then that was it. It was like, oh my God, I'm not alone. These people all feel like me. They all think like me. And that was amazing. That was it. And you've spoken about having a few relapses. I had two rel. I had one one night relapse, and then I had a kind of month relapse where I was lying, lying to my sponsor, going to AA meetings, still going to AA, AA meetings, and then I got quite pissed at dinner. And again, we were having dinner with friends, and then I called up my, you know, and Steen. I could tell he, you know, he again he didn't say anything, but I could tell he was like repelled. And I knew that, you know, if I carried on, I'd lose everything. So I called up my sponsor and I came clean with her. And that was the last time I drank, which was 10 years ago. I can't actually remember. Um, and then I just started to get it. But I initially I did the 90 meetings in 90 days, which was incredible. You know, it is, it's just something, I don't know what it is. It's just there's some kind of magic that happens in those rooms. It is, and it's a community. And as you said, it's suddenly finding this tribe who just speak the same language. Yeah. And I'll never forget, I went to one meeting and, and a guy who was chairing was saying, you know, I wish I had an addiction to broccoli or to exercise. And I was sitting there. Oh, yeah, there and I was go. just like, I can't resist sharing. And I was like, I just can't tell you, but broccoli and exercise are the bane of my existence. Yeah. And trust me, you do not want an addiction <laughs> to those either because they're just as harmful. Yeah. And I think it, there's so much resonance between all the the different various substances we use and mm. whether it's alcohol, whether it's exercise, whether it's drugs Oh, it makes shopping. no difference. I mean, it's just all there. Some, you know, might have different physical manifestations, mm. but it's all the same. It's... Have you found it popping up in other areas that you've had to be mindful of? <sighs> chocolate. You know, I love to eat chocolate, but I just think I'll sod it. You know, so it's just chocolate. But no, I'm, I think I'm pretty, um, pretty well now. You, know. you wouldn't say that your obsession with your internal health, that's not obsessive. No, that's definitely not at all. Just God, no. No, 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 no. I, the, one of the main reasons I do it is so I can have two big bars of chocolate every night. That's why I run. That's why, you know, you've got it's everything. In, I mean, moderation is always going to be a problem um, when it comes to sugar for me. But I just think, you know, you just got to do the best you can so and not right. obsess about it. And mm. so... Fucking what if I have, you know, a family bag of Maltesers? Hurt to Healing has partnered with Brown Advisory to bring you this podcast. Brown Advisory, a global investment management firm, is passionate about raising awareness of mental health challenges in order to help people thrive in an ever-changing world. A big thank you to Brown Advisory for supporting my mission. How did the kids react when you came out about your drinking? Well, when I had blacked out, I sat them all down. About that morning, I got up. I'd broken, unbeknownst to me, two transverse processes, like the lower ribs of my back, by falling on the tarmac. I kind of hobbled down and I just said to them, I sat them around the table and I said, Ernstine, and I just said, you know, I need help. Um, I'm an alcoholic. I've been lying to you. And then I asked them all how they felt and how it affected them. And the two eldest were like, you know, oh, mom, you know, my son's like, mom, you're not that bad. And as my eldest daughter was like, oh, mom, you're so much fun when you drink. And then 
my youngest daughter, Cece, just went very quiet and she was the one who witnessed it most and was the butt of my lying more than the others. So it has affected, you know, I, it can't not have affected them. And that's a work in progress. And when you say Cece was the butt of it, what what do you think? Oh, I'd lie. She catches me. She said, "Mum, you've been drinking," and I go, "No." And then she'd come and find me to see where I was drinking and where I was, and she catches me with a bottle of wine in my mouth. Mm. So that was hugely damaging for her, and it's taken her a long time to trust me again. You know, it took maybe eight years to get that trust back. Mm. So that obviously is going to be damaging, but we're very open about it and we talk about it and, you know, I'm very aware that they won't have got through this unscathed and it's just keeping an eye out for any warning signs. I'm not going to put words in their mouth, but I know that, you know, I'm going to be there. I know to look out and I know what to look for in terms of whether it, you know, manifests itself in... OCD or whatever it is, you know, drinking too much, whatever it is. And I, you know, I said to them, I said, look, I'm so sorry and ashamed and guilty of what I put you all through. I haven't said it to them as a collective, but each of them, and I just, you know, the one way I can make amends is by staying sober. But then I also said to them, I said, look, you know, you've got tools now, you know, you've been through a trauma, you had a difficult time with my drinking. And I said, we just got to turn that into strength, your own personal strength. And everyone goes through trauma at some point in their lives. It's just happened to you a bit earlier and you will go through, there'll be more traumatic times. And hopefully this will have made you a bit more resilient to be able to cope with those times. You know, all those kids and, you know, we, we want to protect our kids to give them, make them feel as safe as possible but it can go too far and then they're completely ill-equipped emotionally to deal with anything. You know, there are so many kids out there who I see and I just think, shit, if anything happens to you, I don't know, you're not going to be able to deal with it. So that, again, might be me being making excuses for myself, but I do personally, whilst it will have been damaging, there's also an upside to it and... Mm -hmm. Jets, you know, I always trying to find the positive in everything, however bad it is. No, I completely agree. And I think it's remarkable that you've got so much self-awareness and you can, as you said, you can actually teach them so much having gone through that journey mm. together. And actually now the fact that you've got that self-awareness and you can guide them through it and mm. all go through this journey together is unbelievable. Because, and not panicking. You no. know, it's like one of my children, I'm not going to say which, but, you know, they said, oh, I think you know, maybe I'm, I have a problem with drinking and once I start, I can't stop. And and I said, darling, just keep an eye on it. You know, keep an eye on it. You're young. You know, you're having fun. It might just be that, but just be aware. And if you get, every time you feel worried, just give me a call. So it's not going, oh my God, you know, you've got to come to an AA meeting with, with me. It's just and taking the drama out of it is, I think, really important. No, I mean, Suzanne, I think it's the most powerful thing you can do as a mum. You've been vulnerable with them and therefore now they feel that they can be vulnerable with you and they yeah, can be honest and open. So. And I think that's just incredible. Mm. If, if I'd had that, it would just have been the biggest booster. And I I just, yeah, I think that what you've done is just should be seen as the best mothering. Mm. But at the same time, 
it's kind of interesting, isn't it? So with my mum, it was a mental illness, okay? And I learned to disassociate from her because I saw her even, I think, probably from mid-teens as someone who was weaker than me. Whereas you maybe didn't have that because your mum is a strong personality. Mm. And I think looking at my mum as a weaker person probably helped, but it also shut me down. But at the same time, I've never kind of thought, I mean, I have thought, of, well, I don't know what it would have been like to have a hands-on mum who'd been there when, you know, I gave birth to my first child and all of that. But that is a time when I did, you know, now I see friends who having grandchildren and stuff and how they are with their daughters, especially. I just think, wow, you know, <laughs> that's something that I never had. And that's really the only time, but... You know, at the end of the day, we can't change it, can we? So we've just got to, it's sort of becoming one's own parent, I guess. And then looking for, you know, we curate our friends who become like parental mm. parent figures, whether they're our age or older. I mean, I have that. I have friends who, you know, there'll be someone who, people, different friends who I'll go for different bits of advice and that's amazing. And I've always looked at my friends as more my family yeah, totally. than my parents. Yeah, and I, I've always gravitated towards older people, mm. I think, for that reason, because I've almost seen them as surrogate parents, uh. in a sense. And I always used to gravitate towards people who had lovely parents yeah. who are my own age, because I think subconsciously I was latching onto them as that's what I craved. I craved to have that maternal figure mm. in my life. And I, and I love having friends of all generations because, mm. as you say, I think you can learn so much from people who are older and wiser and mm. who have lived life and, and who have seen things from other perspectives. But I, think it's, I think you're quite unique because it's like when I sit and talk to you, you're ageless. You have no age. It's like you have the wisdom of someone and the empathy of someone a lot older, but you look young. And it's kind of someone of your age, maybe, you know, who don't have that kind of wisdom. And I think, you know, going through trauma as a child gives you that ability, hopefully, to be more empathetic to other people and to have an ability to where you look at people as they're ageless, regardless of whether you think they're a potential mother figure or... I think like you say, I think when you've suffered and you've, you ruminate so much in your head, you've almost been through all that sort of emotional... But I think it's very different. You see, I never had that. I think having a mum with a mental illness is you're, or you're going to have the fear of abandonment. Mm. But she, she was, she, I was never lied to by her. You know, it, it's very different, mm. I think. What would you say now... I wanted to talk to you about what your relationship was like with Trini when going through that whole drinking ordeal with her. She was, she had tremendous wisdom. Again, you know, she was like Steen. She, she did say to me, oh, I don't think you are an alcoholic once. But she knew, you know, she's in recovery herself, had been for a long time, so she knew what to do. And I mean, she had to carry me and herself through towards the end of our career not end of our career, but before we, you know, we went our separate ways, which was not of our own making. It just is just the way it turned out. 
And so I think it was, I think it must, I still haven't made amends to her yet. I've got to do my amends. I'm on step nine and I'm really trying to avoid that. But I think it must have been very difficult. We've never really spoken about it. But I think because she's got a deep level of of understanding around addiction and everything, I had the right partner to be an alcoholic with. If it had been someone else, it would have been a completely different story. Yeah, I mean, it is extraordinary how her instinct, both instinctively, just knew that it had to come and from And they, they were the, at that time, I mean, you know, Trini still is one of the closest people to me in my life. Mm. But they were my two husbands. Mm. And how lucky. I was, you know, thank you, higher power, to have both of them around. And then as soon as I did get, you know, I went to an AA meeting, they were both so supportive. And do you ever think, oh, I wish I'd gone an alternative way? And or are you just totally now? I mean, I know leaving London for you was quite a, a relief and just mm. having your solitude and your... Mm time in the country and just being at peace and writing mm. your book which mm. has been a huge success well it has pandora it's been critically acclaimed and it's been unbelievably well received but it hasn't sold that well to be totally fucking honest so if you're listening to this anyone go and buy my fucking book definitely buy a book a copy um, of Susanna's and i'm very book. proud of it so yeah it was great and i loved writing it and it was an eye-opener for me. It was as much a surprise for me as it was for people who've read it because I've never looked back on my life. I had no idea it was, I had this extraordinary life. I took everything for granted and then forgot about it. And then I started thinking and, yeah, I wrote it all down. And now it's thinking about what, what's next. What do you think is next? I'm not sure. I seem to be becoming a sort of 60-year-old influencer, which is kind <laughs> of strange. But I will definitely write another book. I'm just not sure. What, I've got an idea and I'm kind of ruminating on it and around it and talking to people. It's basically, I think it might be, I might write a book about a middle-aged groupie of a boy band. So I've got quite a few friends around in that music world who I'm speaking to and just, yeah, we'll see. Fun. Yeah. So just close, what would you say to someone who's really struggling with their drinking? What do you think was the most helpful thing that you heard or in the 12 steps? What advice would you basically give them? I would say if you're thinking you might have a problem, you probably have. It's just, I mean, obviously, you know, admitting to yourself and another person that you are an alcoholic is the first step, but that can be very difficult to get to. So I would say, I mean, for me, it was walking into an AA meeting. So it's like if you know anyone who might be in recovery and you're too scared, which is a very difficult thing to do, to walk in on your own or call up, you know, the helpline, the AA helpline and speak to someone. And because no one's going to tell you you're an alcoholic because it's so subjective Someone might drink a bottle and a half a day and not be an alcoholic because they haven't got the madness, the illness that goes with it. So it's like you say, you go in with AA, you go in for your drinking and you stay for your thinking because it is a mental disorder. And also I think probably the thing I would say which resonated with me the most and took away some of the shame was um, just to remember you're not a bad person who needs to be good. You're 
an ill person who needs to get well. Yeah, and I think that's a really fantastic line to finish on because it is an illness and not enough people recognize that and I'm hoping that with the podcast that's what we're trying to actually express and spread is Mm. that we are not choosing voluntarily to resort to these extreme measures Mm. and we're not doing it as a selfish means to make ourselves feel good it's actually in fact the complete opposite Mm. Mm. if only everyone could understand that I think it's changing it is, slowly. Slowly, very slowly. It kind of like has a little spurt mm. and then it goes back into its stigma box. And then, it, and also for women, I think it's so much harder. Women are so much more judged for drinking. Yeah. You know, you can't, if you're an al- a female alcoholic, you're a slut if you're not married with kids. You're either a slut, an easy lay, or if you've got kids, you're a bad mother. That's it. Whereas with men, one of the lads, you know, come on. It's just so very different. It's so true. And I think it's, as you say, it's still very stigmatised mm. and there's a lot of work we need to do around it. But yeah. And it's all marketed, all the fucking out marketed by these alcohol companies. It's all marketed towards women. I know. You know, it's like every greetings card is like wine o'clock. And, I know. You know. Like going to children's tea party. You know, if your children's four-year-old birthday, you know, give your child the dinosaur and have a glass of wine I mean the whole thing is so (laughs) insane but also the other thing I would say is ask for help and that again women find very very difficult to do ask for help whether it's the shopkeeper who you have a little chat to every day or the milkman or your friend or your sister or whoever just have a conversation with someone else about it Susanna, it's been an absolute joy talking to you. Thank you so much. Such a pleasure, my darling. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Hurt to Healing podcast. I'd love for you to subscribe to the show or to follow me on our Hurt to Healing Instagram at Hurt to Healing Pod. You might also have a friend or family member that you think might benefit from hearing this conversation. So please spread the word. Thank you.